Hello, and welcome to Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. I'm Matt Cantorino. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking with Richard Gamble, Eric Adler, and Bill Smith. Richard Gamble is professor of history and holds the Anna Margaret Ross Alexander Chair in History and Politics at Hillsdale College. His publications include The War for Righteousness, Progressive Christianity, The Great War, and the Rise of the Messianic Nation, The Great Tradition, Classic Readings on What It Means to Be an Educated Human Being, and In Search of the City on a Hill, The Making and Unmaking of an American Myth. Eric Adler is professor and chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Maryland. His scholarly interests include Roman historiography, Latin prose, the history of classical scholarship, and the history of the humanities. He is the author, most recently, of The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Finally, Bill Smith is Managing Director of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America, and his most recent book is Democracy and Imperialism, Irving Babbitt and Warlike Democracies. With those introductions out of the way, let me turn it over to Bill to get us started. Yeah, we're, we're going to start off talking to the professor of history at Hillsdale, Richard Gamble. Hello, Bill, and hello, Eric. Uh, good to uh, be with you all, and thankful for this opportunity to talk about Irving Babbitt and his life and legacy. I've had occasion in just the last few days to return to Babbitt. I've been reading a very fine book about the philosophy of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And there are comments in there about Emerson and about Francis Bacon. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna go back and revisit what Irving Babbitt wrote about in his uh, literature in the American College, his first published book, a collection of essays. And what I found there should not have surprised me at all. What I found was a very sophisticated, nuanced handling of Bacon and of Emerson. I want to come back to that as I have opportunity uh, along the way here. But who was Irving Babbitt? Uh, not a name that's all that well known today, uh, but very well known in his own day. Uh, he was born in 1865 and died in 1933. He pursued a distinguished career at Harvard University. He was a professor of French literature, which certainly will surprise some people if they know him only as uh, a critic, a, uh, an essayist, uh, a philosopher, a political theorist, but he was indeed a professor of French literature. <clears throat> Very well educated, multilingual, studied in Paris at the Sorbonne, uh, studied Sanskrit, produced modern translations of the Bhagavad Gita, a man of tremendous breadth and intelligence and wit and uh, a, a lively, a lively writer who gets a reputation, maybe this is something we can pursue, something gets a reputation as a conservative. Uh, but I don't think he ever called himself a, a conservative. He was included in the 1950s, early 1950s, in Russell Kirk's uh, monumental work of the conservative mind, which helped define the conservative intellectual movement after the Second World War. He included a whole section on Irving Babbitt, which is the way I first encountered Babbitt back in the 1980s. And I think because of that, 
Babbitt gets this reputation of being one of the champions of American conservatism. And there's some truth to that, but we have to look carefully at what we mean. What, what did he see himself as conserving? One of those things he was conserving, and Eric knows far more about this than anyone else, uh, he was trying to conserve the classical tradition, uh, the, the classical humanist tradition in higher education. And he was appalled by the developments at his own institution at Harvard. He was appalled by Charles W. Eliot, uh, the president of Harvard, and the changes he made. They weren't totally original with him. They weren't unique to him. But he really popularized the modern idea of the elective system and uh, focused more on the utility of education, uh, the practicality of education, and slowly but surely requirements for uh, Latin disappeared from the entrance requirements over the decades. And Babbitt, Babbitt was scandalized by this and began writing articles in the late 19th century uh, raising the alarm, raising the alarm about what was happening to the very notion of humanism, the qualities of character. And I know Eric is, is going to speak to this, uh, I'm sure. Uh, he doesn't need too much of an invitation to speak to that question, uh, because education at char as character formation is one of the main things that was under assault in the late 19th and early 20th century. Babbitt uh, found time to write a great deal. Uh, he wrote a number of important books. I've already mentioned his first book, Literature in the American College, a collection of previously published essays. He published uh, Democracy and Leadership in the 1920s. And Bill has done some excellent work uh, revisiting those questions raised uh, immediately after the First World War about the character of leadership in America, the quality of our political statesmen, and the kinds of foreign policy that the United States has uh, pursued in the, in the 20th century. He wrote collections of some of his other literary criticism. He wrote a book published in 1919, I believe, on Rousseau and Romanticism. And anybody who plunges into these works, I think it's important to know, I wish I had known this originally, Babbitt has this intriguing way of cycling through themes in all of his works. It's almost as if he wrote, and I don't mean this as a criticism, as if he wrote one big work, but he keeps coming at it from another angle, another angle, another angle. He cycles through these figures of history, such as Bacon and Rousseau, that he uses as emblematic figures, symbolic figures, in his diagnosis of modernity. And uh, one of the things that I learned the most from him years ago that I still repeat in the classroom, it came up just a few days ago in a class I'm teaching on the social gospel in America. His diagnosis of modernity as a volatile combination of Rousseauism and Baconianism. And that's different from Rousseau, and that's different from Bacon. It's more of their legacies and what has been done with their thought. And we tend to think of Rousseau, the man of the appetites, of, of the passions, uh, of the lower part of, of the soul, if you will. 
and Bacon as the man of the head, of the reason, of the intellect, of the inductive method. And part of Babbitt's brilliance, and I see this, I see this validated in work after work after work in the late 19th, early 20th century. Babbitt's brilliant insight was that modernity was not one of these or the other. We did not, we do not have the Rousseauist impulse at war with the Baconian scientific impulse, but these have been combined into one uh, revolutionary force in Western civilization. Uh, the humanitarian impulse, uh, a sentimental humanitarian on the Rousseauist line, combined with the scientific humanitarianism of Francis Bacon into one, what could we call it, a, a deformed character of in modernity. And he saw this played out in his own time in Woodrow Wilson. He saw it played out in another way in Teddy Roosevelt. And they combined the technocratic mind, the modern technocratic mind with the sentimental humanitarian impulse with what he said were uh, volatile and destructive consequences, both domestically and, and in foreign policy. But Richard, you know a great deal about the progressive era and the time that he was writing and the lead up to World War I and the aftermath of World War I. That's sort of the zeitgeist that, that Irving Babbitt lived on and a lot of his ideas were bounced off the contemporary events. That's exactly right. And uh, if, if any of us are looking for more research projects and more to do, I think a great deal could be written still about Irving Babbitt's cultural political context uh, to reconstruct the, uh, the spirit of that time that he was fighting against. To look at the social gospel clergy in particular, I touched on this a little bit going back almost 30 years now uh, with uh, my book, The War for Righteousness. I cited Babbitt in there and his, his uh, trenchant analysis of the uh, delusional quality of Western civilization that could congratulate itself on its material accomplishments and yet not recognize how it had gone morally astray, that it was morally and ethically bankrupt and yet was so proficient technologically. And uh, he knew that that was not gonna end well. The, the progressive movement, that, that quality of sentimental humanitarianism, that confidence, modern progressive confidence that mankind is smart enough and good enough to remake the world. Uh, we can plan it out. We have the modern science, and this I'm understanding better and better. And Babbitt, Babbitt would have seen this immediately. The confidence that over the preceding, let's say 300 years since Francis Bacon, the modern scientific method had given humanity, especially in Western civilization, power to subdue and control and direct uh, nature itself, the material nature of the world. And what they asked themselves was, hey, if that's true, if that's true, if, if we are now so adept at manipulating the natural order for our benefit intelligently, why not control human society? Why not study human society? And this is the explosion in the new field of sociology uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And combining that with 
a certain brand of liberal Protestant theology, bringing the church and sociology together as these agencies of social transformation. It's an amazing time. It's an amazing generation in, in American history, and it's connected with European history at the same time. And, and Babbitt saw this. Babbitt saw this in the changes in U.S. foreign policy, starting in the Spanish-American War, uh, the first time in our history when a war was justified even in part as a humanitarian crusade, he drew attention, uh, raised the alarm about, about all of these movements. And this hubris of modern man's uh, confidence in his own rational ability and his own, his own beautiful soul uh, to manipulate the world to transform all of these historic institutions and uh, remold them into some imagined world, uh, some imagined future that nobody had ever inhabited. There's no human experience with this imaginary future, but somehow the progressives and the social gospelers were all going to uh, lead us triumphantly into this, into this new world. Why is Irving Babbitt so critical of the progressives uh, and of the social gospel? You know, I can just imagine a student saying, well, going out and making the world a better place, uh, improving uh, the conditions around us, seeking justice. Uh, isn't that the essence of Christianity? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do to be moral? Um, so why is Babbitt so critical of this? I hope you don't expect me to be brief on this, since I am in the middle of a semester <laughs> of reading reading heresy three days a week, uh, which is so much more fun than orthodoxy. I figured that out a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> this is not easy. And my own students, though, Matt, my own students ask this all the time, and they asked it this morning in my seminar. It's a matter of, um, I don't want to say context, it's, it's a matter of where this is being applied. I could have these students read uh, church fathers on these questions. I could have them read uh, Puritans in 16th and 17th century England, which I'm actually gonna do next semester. And they, could, they would encounter some of the same arguments about how love within the body of Christ is manifested through good works and care for one another. Uh, and that's all true. And taken out of context, it looks like it's all one big thing. But the social gospel and liberal Christianity more broadly, and it doesn't affect, you know, they have allies within Judaism and it's not just Protestant, but it's, it's mainly a Protestant, older Protestant American evangelicalism. Uh, what they are doing is saying that this is not an ethic of the body of Christ, of brother to brother within the body of Christ, of brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. This is an ethic that applies in this universalized kingdom, and, and they emphasize the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And that has to be parsed and nuanced very carefully. They take that as about as far as you can go. And so they break down, they break down the distinction. They say this explicitly, break down all distinction between the sacred and the secular. They say that is a pernicious dualism 
that infected Christianity. They break down the distinctions between church and state, saying that there are two agencies for one divine end. So, so for them, Christianity is first and foremost an ethic. It is not redemption. It is not redemption from sin for the sake of eternal life and communion with God. It is ethical good advice to transform the economy, politics, foreign policy. Uh, that is the mission of the church. And they caricature traditional Christian orthodoxy. They say that you know, the bad old days, well, that was individualism. And today we know that it's collectivism. We used to speak in the old selfish way about an individual's salvation, but now we know that the salvation of individuals is utterly meaningless apart from the redemption of all of society, the collective redemption. Yeah, uh, thank you, Professor Gamble. Let me uh, pivot to Professor Adler. So just as there's this shift in American religion in the early 20th century, away from a so-called individualist emphasis toward a social focus, is there a parallel development in education uh, away from an older notion of humanism uh, and toward either kind of service, you know, service to the world um, on the one hand or ever more specialized and narrow forms of research uh, on the other? What does Babbitt say about developments in education? Yeah, I think, uh, thank you, Matthew. I think that um, Babbitt's views on education uh, and humanism and so-called new humanism are a perfect example of what Richard said earlier when he said that Babbitt has often been pigeonholed as a conservative, but that in some ways that this isn't entirely fair. He didn't perceive himself to be one. Um, and I think in some ways it does an injustice to his legacy to sort of see him only in this little grouping. Um, there is a sense in which Babbitt was uh, concerned about something when it came to education from the past that he thought was lost. And that I think you would say is humanism, the humanism associated with the uh, American colleges um, from their foundation in colonial America all the way up until the Civil War. And he believed, I think correctly, that um, the philosophically dominant element of the curriculum and therefore the colleges themselves was humanistic about character development, making a person good. Now, this wasn't the only element. There were lots of other religious elements associated with the college curriculum. There were um, scholastic elements associated with the college curriculum as well. Um, and also I should su suggest that Babbitt was deeply critical of some aspects of the early American colleges, that he thought they were too narrow and sectarian and so forth. And so he didn't love them and didn't want to return to them in a way that some of his critics had suggested. At the same period of time, Babbitt was a revolutionary humanist um, and actually envisioned a kind of humanism that was worlds away from the sorts of ideas from the early American colleges and also from reformers of his own time and critics of his own time. And so he was sort of partly a traditionalist in a sense, in, insofar as he saw something that was lost, which is a concern for character that he associated with humanism. And then also he was a kind of revolutionary who was willing to update humanism in a manner that in some ways is kind of too novel for a lot of people today. And he envisioned um, a worldwide humanism, one that encompassed not just the Western tradition, so-called, not just the classics, but actually all civilization, 
uh, all human civilization. And so he took some of these ideas that, that Richard talked about in his answer before about what he perceived to be a fundamental philosophical shift from the old American colleges to the modern American university of his own day. And he perceived that the uh, the modern American university of his own day had shifted away from a philosophy of humanism as its dominant element to a kind of mixture of Rousseauism and Baconianism, two associated forms of naturalism that had themselves completely moved away from the notion of character development because they were based on the principle in Rousseau that human beings are by nature good and therefore they just need to uh, uh, let loose all of their impulses and they will naturally be good. This is related to Charles Eliot's elective curriculum where students should themselves select all their own courses because they naturally know what's best for themselves and so forth, which also has a tinge of kind of scientism on it as well because all human beings are supposedly completely different and therefore they should naturally select whatever associates uh, with their own, uh, own vision of life. So he believed that this was a fundamental betrayal of what early American higher education did insofar as that it was completely opposed to the notion of character development. And he thought that as Richard has, I think suggested as well correctly, that this was dangerous. That the idea that we can just naturally train people merely for their own utilitarian pursuits and then presume that they somehow will use the, this utilitarian training in beneficent service to society is a fundamental flaw um, with Rousseau and a fundamental flaw about human nature, which denies the kind of dark elements of human nature, the kind of dualism that he associated with humanism going all the way back into the, the classical tradition itself. And so what did he do? Well, he updated humanism so that it wasn't going to be a return to some desiccated classics only curriculum um, of, of the early American colleges, but instead also wasn't going to embrace merely the so-called Western tradition and the great books associated with the West, but also was going to bring in Confucius and Buddha and various other tr uh, traditions as well to try to search for a kind of innate human wisdom that might help people live up to their higher potentialities and perhaps live more satisfying lives. So Eric, let me give you an opportunity to plug your book. <laughs> Talk a little bit about what happened with the classics at Harvard, what Babbitt's reaction to that was. Um, go into that in a little more detail. You glanced over it, but um, I think people would be interested. Thank you. I, I love an opportunity to plug my book, first off. <laughs> the book is called The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. There's a chapter on Babbitt, but there are a number of other chapters as well. And I try to show in the book that Babbitt was a kind of revolutionary figure and deeply consequential figure in the history of the humanities in America. What Babbitt saw, I think, was that the change of the curriculum from the old a largely prescribed curriculum in which it was perceived that students should read particular works of literature in order to, uh, because these works of literature um, provided the most profound models um, for people to understand um, in order to, to determine for themselves the answer to the question, how should you live your life? That this was moved away from, and that especially under Charles W. Eliot, who was president for 40 years uh, at Harvard from uh, starting in 1869, to a completely elective curriculum where people could just choose whatever they wanted. 
And he believed that this was based on a fundamental misimpression of human nature, that human beings can't just be uh, given free reign to choose whatever they want. And I think any kind of adult and maybe many kids who are listening to this would understand that students, by and large, if allowed to choose whatever they want, tend to choose whatever's easiest, whatever doesn't meet on Friday, whatever gives the big, best grades and so forth. And that this is basically, I mean, as humorous as this might be, this is because it's based on a fundamental misimpression of what human beings are like. And so he perceived that there was an element to the curriculum, the dominant element to the curriculum that Eliot and his fellow um, uh, shapers of the university movement of the United States had come up with was anti-humanistic. It was anti-humanistic insofar as it was naturalistic and Rousseauistic and Baconian, and it denied the importance of character development. So uh, uh, Babbitt himself both lamented the fact that the humanities were being pushed to the periphery of American higher education, but he also lamented what this was going to mean for American culture and American happiness, because he perceived that people were not going to live decent lives if they had just merely chosen the easiest classes possible and headed off with merely utilitarian training, that this was not a guide to the good life. And I think in that way he showed, um, and, and this is how democracy and leadership comes in in 1924, he believed that this essentially led to the Great War, that this was uh, an, an, uh, an excrescence of the sort of problems that he perceived in the curriculum. So he thought this fundamental shift from the old classical colleges and their humanistic curriculum to what was itself anti-humanistic was a disaster, not just for American higher education, but for the world and for human happiness. Yeah, he has, a, he has that funny quip when he talks about Eliot's elective system where he says, uh, the wisdom of the ages is to be discarded for the whims of a sophomore. Right. Um, and, and that's just devastating. Right. And yet it's, it's interesting that, you know, if you think about, you talk to professors today, the idea that students should just choose whatever they want, choose their own major, choose their electives, um, choose their required electives associated with distribution is sort of seen as obvious. It's the kind of system we've been dealing with since really the late 19th century. And I think this is one reason why it's so important to go back to Babbitt's writing, especially literature in the American college where he most fully offers his pedagogical and curricular views, because I think he shows very uh, significantly and, and, and very convincingly that it's based on a flawed understanding of the human being. So Babbitt's proposed curriculum would be global uh, in scope, but there's another element to it that I think is interesting, and it's the focus on the kind of literary or imaginative element. Um, wasn't classical education typically focused on things like rhetoric or logic? Uh, so why does Babbitt emphasize the literary aspect of education so much? Yeah, that's, that's a, a wonderful follow-up question. First, I guess I would say that in regard to Babbitt himself, uh, or I think in general, it's, it'd be very difficult for us in the study of the classics to separate rhetoric from literature. Our understanding of ancient literature and our understanding of ancient rhetoric are very much intertwined. And so if you're going to read uh, about ancient rhetoric, you're going to read Aristotle, you're going to read uh, Cicero uh, and so forth, and you're going to be uh, you know, associated with literature itself. But I do think that Babbitt himself believed that particular literary works 
offered the most profound visions of human experience and the human predicament. And therefore they were the most useful models for students to read during the courses of their education. This did not mean that those students had to agree with those models. They could reject them, they could transcend them or what have you. But he still believed that you should choose the most profound models uh, for students when they're going to read. And this could come from poetry, this could come from novels, uh, what have you. This could come from philosophical works, but he thought that that was what was most essential. He did believe, however, that this did not mean one had to rely on what has come to be called um, the, the Western canon. And instead he believed in something that he called the platonic problem of the one and the many. And that is the idea that human beings have both impulsive desires that separate themselves um, from one another, that they, they essentially act as selfish entities. This is their lower nature, but they also have a higher nature which shows how they are intertwined and similar. So that human beings on human traditions are both different and the same at the same time. And so he perceived in that way that there is a sense in which the most profound works of literature and philosophy, poetry, novels, what have you, actually in some ways correspond in their messages, right? This doesn't mean that Confucius is exactly like Jesus, who's exactly like Aristotle or what have you, but this does mean that there's a profound correspondence and some thought among thinkers from different traditions who have been perceived to be especially valuable. To him, this suggested that there may be a kind of universal human wisdom that would be very valuable for students to take in while they're trying to sort out the question of how they should live their life. And so implicitly then, he supported a kind of omnicultural humanism that looked at various civilizations, various human cultures for traces of a kind of similar wisdom as he saw it that could help people to live their lives. Now, as far as pragmatics were concerned, well, uh, Babbitt was not that concerned about laying out a curriculum. He nowhere in his work says, okay, read these 10 books and then these 12 should be recommended or anything like that. Now, partly I think he did that for an understandable pragmatic reason, which is that people could get sidelined by his choices and then sort of ignore the larger philosophical discussion that he was offering. Um, but second, I think he didn't think that he was in a place necessarily to dogmatically assert what everybody should read. In some senses, this should come up with, uh, this should be based on what um, uh, faculty members actually believed, what they thought was part of the wisdom of the ages as well. So he wasn't so heavy handed, I suppose, as to offer a kind of on high curriculum for everybody. But that unfortunately did lead to the misimpression that somehow he wanted to return to the earlier American colleges. When in reality, as I think I've described, he was interested in transcending those and offering a curriculum that had some similarities with the old American colleges, but moved vastly in a very different direction. These are the flaws of that 1952-53 Great Books of the Western World. Uh, there's no Cicero in it, which is just ridiculous. And it, it's very deficient in imaginative literature, deficient in novels, uh, has some plays. And the great classicist Gilbert Hyatt uh, wrote a very critical review of great books, and as did Jacques Barzin at Columbia. And I think, I think that would be a really interesting conversation. Be willing to, because I know with my own students, 
because that's supposed to be sacred. You know, if you're a Hillsdale College undergraduate, the whole, no, that's a settled question. And it's our job to, to man the barricades and defend, you know, because we were trained at classical schools. And, but I try to get students to loosen up about what's, do we, did we even get it right of what the most formative works are of Western civilization? Bill, this so far has been a discussion of education and culture. What does that have to do with foreign policy? Why does Babbitt then jump from those topics into foreign policy? Well, he, he, he actually didn't really jump into that arena. I kind of distilled what would be a Babbitsian foreign policy from, you know, all of his works. Um, and if I had to characterize, he, he, was, he was considered the, the founder of comparative literature, I think. I, there's still an Irving Babbitt chair of comparative literature at Harvard. Um, but I would characterize him, I think a better characterization is that he was a political philosopher more than anything. He was also, as Eric said, an ecumenical political philosopher. He wasn't like Aristotle and, and Plato, whose only universe was the, the uh, Athenian city-state. He had a very broad view of world religions, and he had, he had come to the conclusion that Plato and Aristotle were correct, that the type of person that rules is going to determine the order of the polity. So, you know, the famous, the, the city is the soul written in larger letters. Um, so if you have a, a, a person with low character who takes over the country, it's going to be a tyranny, not a kingdom. Or if you have a group that takes over and they have low character, it's going to be an oligarchy, not an aristocracy. The type of person who leads is extremely important. Babbitt applied this principle in a way the classic political philosophers never did. He applied it to foreign policy. He said you have to have a certain type of leader if you're going to have a world order that where people get along. He called it kind of a genuine cosmopolitanism. You're going to have to have a certain type of leader. And the certain type of leader he distilled down from reading all about the world's great religions. So what is a good Christian for St. Paul? A good Christian is someone who has aligned his will to the divine will, not to his own selfish will. But Babbitt would go further and say, well, what does Confucius say a superior leader is? And Confucius would say a superior leader is someone who does work that no one else can see, has an inner life in which they're constantly working to suppress their selfish desires for a higher purpose. He, he commonly quoted the Hindu phrase, inner check. You have to have an inner check upon your selfish desires. Those characteristics of character are what he said is essential in world leaders, that there are important theories of international relations, balance of power, and all, and they're also ideological that we've learned in the last couple of decades, and, or going back to Wilson, they're ideological characteristics of foreign policy. But Babbitt says what, what is ignored in analysis of, of nation states between each other is the character of the leader themselves that Wilson may have been a devout Christian, but he also had this imperialistic personality that he wanted to impose on the rest of the world. And we saw that in George W. Bush in Iraq. This is a crusade for democracy. America is gonna impose its will on others. And it's, it's kind of the opposite of what, and Babbitt would say this, it's kind of the opposite of kind of the constitutional personality that George Washington had. You know, in his famous farewell address, he said, we should have a humble foreign policy. We shouldn't have passionate attachments or enemies. We should be 
open-minded and, and, and gracious towards all countries. And he didn't just say democracies, he said towards all countries. Right now, in, in a bipartisan way, for decades, we've had a foreign policy where we've said to the world, we are exceptional, you're not. So get on the program, adopt democratic values, American system. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think even our elite foreign policy leaders understand how alienating this is to the rest of the world. This is like me. I think I have a wonderful family, right? And imagine me going around my town and saying, my family's exceptional, so much better than yours. You should discipline your children the way I did. You should educate them the way I did. I'm exceptional. You're not. How liked would I be in my town? And, and on the world stage, there's a similar view of American foreign policy. It's arrogant. It's not humble. It, they don't look at their own failings. They, they just criticize everyone else. And I think that there's, that's a very problematic foreign policy. And it is very much out of tune with what the framers of the American Constitution, especially Washington, recommended. And, you know, we, I talk a lot in the book about the imperialistic personality, the personality who wants to impose his will on others. And it's a desire for power more than a policy. And I don't want to get too contemporary with events, but what we've seen a lot during the pandemic is the imperialist personality of public health authorities imposing all sorts of things on the citizenry that, that aren't based in science, that are really just exercising their own power over others. The American foreign policy is, is going to be have that, that characteristic to it, um, if that's the characteristic personality trait of our elites. Who were Babbitt's opponents, aside from the broad social trends we've already discussed? Can you name some names? Well, T.S. Eliot was, was one of his students, was not an opponent. I wouldn't characterize him that way, but later in Eliot's life, he was concerned Babbitt wasn't as religiously dogmatic as he should have been. That this humanism thing that Babbitt touted, kind of an ethical humanism, wasn't powerful enough to regulate human behavior. You needed, you needed strong religious ties. And that's a fair debate, but I, I wouldn't call Eliot an opponent. He, in fact, Eliot said, once you're a student of Babbitt, you're always a student of Babbitt you're for your whole life because his ideas always kick around in your mind. Um, but he, was a, he, was a, he would spar with many people. H.L. Mencken was a big opponent of his um, for a variety of, of different reasons. Um, but he was very much in the public square uh, during his time as an academic, and, and he sparred a lot. Um, he had debates in Carnegie Hall where once 5,000 people showed up. So um, he was a prominent, prominent figure. He, he'd be called a, a, one of the most prominent pundits in the country if he were, if he were uh, operating today. He was uh, also criticized by the Southern agrarians. It's been quite a while since I've read through that. He might even come up, the new humanism comes up by name in I'll Take My Stand. And my recollection is that the Southern agrarians objected to the emphasis, such a, such a strong emphasis on human will, uh, that, they, that they saw this as a distortion of the fullness of the human personality is my recollection of that. I would also add that, that as far as um, pedagogy and curriculum was concerned, Charles W. Eliot was his chief enemy. Um, he was, Babbitt had to be careful there too because he was also the president of Harvard for much of Babbitt's career. And so Babbitt made clear in his writings that were critical of Eliot that he admired Eliot's character, but that he just thought he was wrong. But boy, did he think he was wrong. Um, Eliot himself had suggested that the purpose of education was for service and power. 
And Babbitt suggested that this was totally wrong, that the, the purpose of education should be for character. Um, and so that he, he believed that Eliot sort of embodied the Baconian ethos and the Rousseauistic ethos together, and that he actually was anti-humanistic. And actually, if you look at Charles W. Eliot's writings, he is anti-humanistic. It's very clear. He believes that someone, a student, should look forward and not backward. They should look outward and not in. This is exactly the opposite of what Babbitt thought education ought to do. And it was feeding the sort of arrogance uh, and, and megalomania that he thought were ruining the country. Yeah, and to follow up on that, I think one point that should be made before we go away from Babbitt in this podcast is that I think one of the most powerful uh, diagnoses that, that Babbitt made of the modern world since Rousseau is that they have reinvented the term virtue. Prior to Rousseau, virtue was self-control. It was humility. It was getting hold of yourself and wrestling your, your worst angels to the ground and letting your better angels dominate your personality. After Rousseau, that went out the window. Babbitt called it a dualism in the human, human nature. That was thrown out the window for what Babbitt described as naturalism. And when, by naturalism, he meant your, whatever your emotion or your, or, or your selfish desire is, follow up on it. Just go with it. Do it. His whole theory of education is don't give the children any habits like Aristotle said, do the opposite. Let them be completely spontaneous. Human nature is by good definition good. Where virtue comes in is when you associate yourself with sentimental humanitarian causes. I'm for the homeless. I'm for the... And Babbitt's diagnosis of, of that was that it breeds a certain type of person that's not virtuous. That they're only... The modern term is virtue signaling, right? You know, you have the modern uh, Hollywood gutter snipe that gets up in an award ceremony, they treat their family terribly, they treat their friends terribly, they're greedy, selfish, and loathsome people. But they get up at the Hollywood banquet and say, you know what, I'm getting very involved in the homeless cause and we're gonna do something about it. And they're not really doing anything about it, they just associate themselves with it. And Babbitt called that easy virtue. It's a redefinition of the term virtue. It doesn't take any personal work, it just takes yourself associating with a cause. and. His diagnosis of modern ethics, I think, is one of the most powerful components of him. And Edmund Burke, uh, writing about Rousseau, called it the ethics of vanity. There's yeah. a, a, a phrase that really captures the problem. Where should someone start with Babbitt if they're interested in picking him up? Are some of his works easier than others? It's easy to say, start where I started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I think for college students, for serious, intelligent college students, uh, some of the essays in literature in the American college are, are, are accessible and get at these questions of defining terms. I think, I think that still connects with students. Yeah, and, and if, if you're interested in politics, clearly democracy and leadership, Although I must say, personally, my favorite book is Rousseau and Romanticism. I think he captures uh, more modern trends in that and explains more in that book than any other book. But that is not an easy book. That's, that's a challenging book. I wouldn't recommend that to an undergrad. I'd agree with Richard. Literature in the American College, it gives his view of human nature and education, and it sets you up to understand what his political views are later. Yeah, in some sense, I guess one benefit of Babbitt is that, as has been underscored before by Bill, um, 
they are all of a piece with one another. So wherever you start, if you're really serious about him, you're going to go elsewhere anyway. So in some ways, the start doesn't make as much of a, of a difference as the fact that you're going to end up reading the entire works. But I do think that literature in the American college is comparatively accessible. Um, I, I think Rousseau and Romanticism is a great work, but it's long um, and it's more convoluted. So I, I do think literature in the American college is probably the place to start. And just for Richard's benefit to tie the beginning to the end, since he's working on some Emerson, it is my considered opinion and somewhat well-informed opinion that the most quoted quip of all of, in all of Babbitt, it appears in all of his major works, is a quote from Emerson. Here it is. Yep. There, are, there are two laws discrete, not reconciled, law for man and law for thing. It build, The last builds the town and fleet, but it does run wild and doth the man unking. And basically saying man has this lower part of his nature that if it runs wild, turns everything upside down. Babbitt quotes that throughout all of his works in articles, books, and everywhere. And I never, ever thought I would be saying this, but <laughs> some of the reading I've been doing on Emerson is a wonderful, wonderful scholar, uh, literature and philosophy professor living in France. And he has a new book out on Emerson as philosopher and it's terrific scholarship. And it's got me thinking right back to that quotation, Bill. And I might even start, I'm going to write a review of this, of this book. And I might start it with that. What looks so peculiar? Why would Irving Babbitt of all people uh, use these lines from a rather peculiar poem by uh, an ode and it's to William Henry Channing, who's one of the wackiest of the transcendentalists. What in the world is the connection here? And as I indicated earlier, Babbitt has a very sophisticated understanding of Emerson, which I think is being borne out by scholarship today, that there's a whole lot more going on in Emerson. He's not a Rousseauist uh, period. Uh, there's much more substance to him. And I think Babbitt's nuanced accounts of Bacon echo what Emerson says. Emerson says that Bacon is a Platonist, which just messes with modern preconceptions about these figures uh, in a delightful way. Uh, so yeah, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that, Bill. I was just looking at that poem the other day and, and I read the entire ode uh, and I was left scratching my head. <laughs> well, thank you to everyone for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've been speaking with Richard Gamble, professor of history at Hillsdale College, and with Eric Adler, professor of classics at the University of Maryland. We've been joined by Bill Smith, managing director of CSS. This has been an episode of Encounters, a podcast of the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America. Encounters is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and at our website, css.cua.edu. Thanks for listening. Until next time.